I realized belatedly that I had skimmed right over a verse last week that has been used by Christians to exclude people. It's a verse that seems simple on its face, but that's only if you take it out of context, which is it tends to be done. Here's a condensed version of the passage we went over last week. Jesus says, I go to prepare a room for you. I will come back to get you. But you know the way to get there. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now notice that the disciples know the way because Jesus is the way. And we talked last week about how how all these I am statements, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, can also be viewed as pointing to the Father too, which is what Jesus always does, always. And here's the part I didn't talk about last week, but is important. Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you know my Father as well and have seen him. I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Now, look how inclusive this is in that Jesus and the Father are one completely. But this verse about no one coming to Father except through Jesus is the one that is used to bar the gate to God. It is used to categorically deny the validity of the faith of millions of people around the world who worship God. And that does not sound like Jesus to me. Jesus never barred the door to God. So what do we do with this verse? Well, we pull out our backpack tools. That's what we do. The first one we use is to look behind the English to the Greek. And we discover that the word through can also be translated on account of or because of. In fact, in the Greek, the entire phrase actually says, No one comes to the Father if not because of me or on account of me or through me. That turns the meaning completely around. Rather than being an act of self-help on our part, it becomes a generous, open-the-door-wide act of Jesus. Jesus goes before us. Jesus helps us. Jesus shows us the way. Jesus is the way. Jesus makes the way. If we know Jesus, we know God and vice versa. Notice how all-encompassing this is and how God is the center of it. That was the whole point of our discussion last week of how Jesus absolutely permeates all parts of the patronage model he is using as his whole framework for this whole part of the discussion. Jesus is in no way being exclusionary with this statement if you take it in its full context. At least that's how I read this. We are right in the middle of the Last Supper. Jesus and the disciples are in an upper room eating and drinking the Passover meal together. As Jesus reclines and talks with his disciples, the love and tenderness in his voice grows stronger and stronger. He says, 
I am the true, real, genuine vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Now, think about that for a second. I don't think we think about this very carefully, usually. God is carefully tending the vine, and the vine is Jesus. Jesus is the vine being trained and nourished and pruned. And Jesus says, my father takes away every branch in me that does not produce fruit. The word for takeaway is not the Greek word for cut. It is the Greek word for lifting or hoisting. Does God prop up and try to salvage each branch that is unhealthy? Jesus says, it is the branches that are producing fruit that the father prunes so as to make them even more fruitful. Isn't that interesting? And the word here for prunes is the same word as cleanses in Greek, which is why Jesus says, you are already cleaned, pruned because of the word I have spoken to you. All this cleaning and pruning is not lopping off sinners. It's it's cleaning and pruning the branches that are already producing fruit to make them more fruitful. Jesus says, stay in me and I stay in you. A branch cannot bear fruit by itself. It has to remain part of the vine. It is the same with you. I am the vine the Father is tending, and you are the branches. Anyone who does not stay attached to the vine is like a branch that withers up and dries when it is separated from the vine. It's it's simply gathered up and cast into the fire. Jesus is talking about people becoming dry husks, not useful for any fruitful purpose in the kingdom of God. This is a metaphor, folks, and should not be taken as a literal burning of people. On the other hand, Jesus says, if you do remain in me and my words continue in you, then whatever you intend to happen, just ask and it will come into being for you. This is my father's intention, that you bear much fruit. This is what glorifies, what brings honor to my father. This is what makes you disciples, bearing fruit. I have loved you the same way my father has loved me. Keep what I have charged you to do, and you will abide in my love the same way I keep the father's commands and abide in his love. If you notice, we can choose to abide in his garden and bear fruit, or we can choose to do something else. This is pretty poignant to me as we navigate having our teenage grandson live with us. Ours is a house of love and utter support, but he has control over whether we can continue to live together. He's doing great, but the choice is entirely in his hands. It would be a great tragedy, I think, and detrimental to his health and his life if he chose to withdraw from our support. My heart silently urges him every day to remain in our home, to do the things needed to be able to live there. This, I think, is what Jesus is feeling here. Jesus says, I tell you to abide in my love so my joy may be in you and your joy may be full to the brim, complete. 
Now love each other the way I have loved you. The same way the Father has loved me. There is no greater love than to lay your life down for your friends. It is no accident that Jesus says these last two things together. He's talking about the way he has already loved them. I think he is pointing to his life as an example, not his death. He has poured his entire life out for his disciples. He has laid his life down for them. He's lived with them, walked with them, starved with them, and healed them in every way. That is true love. True love is not some final heroic act, although those certainly matter. But true love is worked out in the small, everyday ways we lay our lives down for each other. Jesus says, you are my friends if you do what I have charged you to do. You're no longer servants. A servant does not know what his master is doing. No, I call you friends because I have shared with you everything I have heard from the Father. I know you didn't choose me, but I chose you and assigned you to bear fruit, fruit that will, that will remain, abide, so that whatever you might ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is in John fifteen sixteen. This is the third time during the Last Supper that Jesus has told them this. This, it, this must be very, very important. The first time was in John 14, 11 through 14, where he said, believe in me and do the works I have been doing, and you will do even greater things, for I will do what you ask in my name. The second time was in John fifteen seven through 8, where he said, if you remain in me and let my words continue in you, you can ask whatever you wish and it will be done, so you will bear much fruit. Notice that every single time this idea that anything we ask will be given to us comes up, it is in the context of giving us what we need to do the Father's work. It is in the context of bearing fruit. It is in the middle of us bearing fruit. I think folks worry so much that when they don't get what they're praying for, they either think these promises are empty or they think the problem is that they don't have enough faith. They think they're not praying hard enough for money or believing hard enough for someone to get well or behaving well enough for God to respond. But if you take all three of these statements in context, that's not the situation Jesus is talking about at all. Jesus is saying, that the Father will provide all that is needed for his work. We show up, God provides. That's how it works. We should ask for what we need, but we must also be attentive to the movement of the Holy Spirit. If the resources are not there, we may be lingering over a field that is no longer fruitful. We need to follow the Holy Spirit and let go of any work we are trying to do on our own. Jesus clarifies all this once again, saying, 
And this is what I am charging you to do. Love each other. Don't worry about whether the world hates you. It hates me too. You don't belong to the world. Otherwise, it would love you. The world is going to treat you exactly the same way it treated me. It persecuted me, it hunted me down, and it will do the same to you. It will not listen to you any more than it listened to me. They'll treat you this way because of my name. I think Jesus is saying that because the disciples will continue to teach as apostles of Jesus, they will be identified with him and will be treated exactly the same way the world treats him. Makes sense. Jesus says, The world will do this because it never did perceive who it was that sent me. If I had never come and told them, they would not know any better and there would be no sin. But they do know better and there is no excuse for their sin. I think Jesus is talking about those who witnessed his signs and miracles, who understood his teachings and who knew he was sent from God but refused to admit it. They clung to their own power instead and ignored God. This is a very focused group of of folks that Jesus has got in view here. Jesus says, whoever is hating me is also hating my father. They are hating both me and my father. And this actually fulfills an old prophecy. They hated me without reason. Well, we know that Jesus never quotes a verse out of context. So what is the context of this particular prophecy? It's from Psalm 35. It's a Psalm of David. David is in great distress and he calls on the Lord to come to his aid. He says, tell me you are my salvation, Lord. Disgrace those who are trying to kill me. Let them fall into the traps they've set for me. Traps they set without cause. They repay me evil for good. They slander me without ceasing. They hate me without reason. That's the bit Jesus says is now being fulfilled. Notice that Jesus says this is not only David's personal plea, but is also a messianic prophecy. David says, arise to my defense, Lord, and I will speak of your righteousness and praise you all day long. And this is exactly what Jesus is trying to convey to his disciples. The world treated King David like this. The world treated Jesus like this. And the world is going to treat the disciples like this. Just before this, Jesus had told the disciples he would ask the Father to give them another paracleton, another advocate, another spirit of truth besides himself. This one is to be present with them forever. This is the one we call the Holy Spirit. And though it is not separate from the Father or from Jesus, that's why Jesus called it another one. And now he tells them more about this Holy Spirit that there is, that is to be their advocate and their helper. He says, when I ask for this helper and he goes forth from the Father to you, he will give evidence about me. He will bear witness to me and he will speak truth about me. You must do the same because you have been with me from the start. And then Jesus warns them of what they'll be facing. He says, 
they will throw you out of the synagogues. In fact, they'll think that anyone who kills you is doing an act of service for God. They will do these things because they do not know either the Father or me. I tell you all these things so you do not stumble, so you will remember these words when the time comes. I didn't tell you before because I was with you, but now I'm going to the one who sent me. I think Jesus pauses here and waits a beat in silence. No one says anything. And Jesus says, you aren't asking me where I'm going. You're focused only on your sorrow over what I've said, but I'm telling you the truth when I say that my going away is a good thing. If I don't go away, the paracleton will not come to you. But when I go away, I will send him to you and he will expose that the world is wrong about sin, about justice, and about judgment. They're wrong about sin because they do not believe in me. They're wrong about justice because I'm going to the Father and you will not see me anymore. And they are wrong about judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. Well, that's some pretty juicy stuff there. We're going to dig into this in our breakout groups in a minute. Jesus says, I have a lot more things to say to you, but you can't bear them right now. When the paracleton comes, he is the spirit of truth and he will guide you into the whole truth. He will not speak from himself, but will speak only what he hears. And he will declare to you the things that are coming. He will honor me because he is giving to you out of the things that belong to me. And I hold Everything the Father holds. In a little while, you will no longer see me. Then a little while after that, you will see me again. So Jesus obviously knows he will be resurrected shortly after his crucifixion. But the disciples, as you can imagine, are completely baffled. They ask each other, what in the world does he mean? I don't, I don't understand. Do you know what he's talking about? And Jesus sees their complete confusion and says, I tell you for sure, you will weep and lament while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy, just like a woman forgets the tribulation of childbirth in her joy when her child is finally born. Now you grieve, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice. In that day, you will not ask for anything. Notice the in that day reference, which usually is a marker for the end times. Jesus says, I tell you for sure, for sure, my father will give you whatever you ask in my name. You haven't even tried this yet. I'm telling you, ask and you will receive so that your joy will be filled to the brim. I've been speaking to you in parables figuratively up to now, but a time is coming when I will report to you plainly about my father. Notice the time is coming in time language again. 
There are things Jesus cannot yet say to us, but the time is coming when he can speak plain and boldly and with freedom about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I will not say to you, I will ask the Father for you. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and believe I have come from him. Isn't that beautiful? In that day, in the end time, we will be speaking directly to the Father. There will be no more ask in Jesus' name. I don't think Jesus is saying that God doesn't listen now unless we ask something in Jesus' name. I actually think Jesus is saying the exact opposite. I think he's speaking entirely in the context of telling his disciples not to worry when he's gone and they can't ask him questions anymore or run to him for help. He's telling them, you can still come to me just like you've always done. But what's really happening is that I'm simply going straight to the Father. All good things come from the Father. And there will come a day when the Father will be sitting right here on earth and you can ask him just like you've asked me here on earth. Well, apparently this makes sense to the disciples too because they say, oh, okay, now we get it. You're saying that you know all things, so you don't have to ask anyone anything. Now we believe you came from God. (laughs) It still seems like the disciples are missing the point. Jesus was talking about how they won't need to ask him anything, but they can't seem to hear this. They cannot see themselves in the picture. They only hear Jesus saying that Jesus won't have to ask the Father for anything on their behalf because Jesus will know everything. You can almost hear Jesus sigh. He says, oh, so now you believe. Well, the time is here for you to be scattered. You will leave me alone by myself. But I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have told you all this, so you may have peace in me. In the world you have persecution, tribulation. But take courage, for I have conquered the world. Now this is before the crucifixion. When Jesus says he has conquered, overcome, prevailed over the world, he's using a Greek verb form here that means it is already done. And now the meal is over. Jesus lifts his eyes to heaven and prays. And as he prays, feel him lay his hand on your head. Hear him praying over you. Jesus says, Father, the time has come. Honor your son, so that your son can honor you. For you have given him authority over all flesh, so that he may give them eternal life. Eternal life is knowing you, the one true God, and Jesus, the Messiah, the one you have sent. I have honored you on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now honor me, Father, with yourself, with the honor I had with you 
before the world existed. I made your name visible to the people you gave me out of the world. They have kept your word. And now they know that everything I have comes from you. The words you gave me, I have given them, and they took them to heart. They truly know that I came from you and that you sent me. I am praying for them, not for the world, for these whom you gave me are truly yours. Everything that is mine is yours, and everything that is yours is mine. I am no longer in the world, but they are. I am coming to you. Keep them safe in your name, the name you gave to me. Keep them in your name, that they may be one as we are one. When I was with them, I kept them safe in your name, the name you gave me. None of them perished, except the son of destruction, presumably Judas Iscariot, so that scripture might be fulfilled. I'm going to say here that I don't think Jesus is saying Judas lost his way because of scripture, but that Jesus lost only the single one that scripture had said would be lost. I have given them your word and the world has hated them for it because they are not of the world any more than I am. And I am not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them safe from evil. Make them holy by the truth. Your word is truth. You sent me into the world, and I am sending them into the world in the same way. I make myself holy so that they too can be made holy in truth. And I am not just asking this for them, but for all who believe in me, because of their words, so that the world may believe that you sent me and we may all be one together. I have given them the honor that you gave me so they may be perfectly and completely one as you and I are one. So the world will know you sent me and that you loved them just like you loved me. Father, I want them to be where I am so they can see the honor you gave me because you loved me before the world was established. Righteous, just Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know you sent me. I have made your name known to them and will keep making it known. So the love with which you loved me will be in them. And so I myself may be in them. 
And with this long and loving prayer, the Last Supper is over. Jesus' words have been simple and clear for the most part. There was just that one bit about the world misunderstanding sin, justice, and judgment. It's no surprise that the world would misunderstand those. So let's take a closer look at what Jesus said about them just now. All righty. So um, hopefully this was some interesting stuff. Um, these, This is not a, you know, straightforward little set of, of little list that Jesus talks about. So let's take it from the top. Mm-hmm. Jesus says the world is wrong about sin because people do not believe in him. Now, sin, that word in Greek means blatantly or widely missing the mark. So if the world is wrong about sin because people do not believe in him. How would that get corrected if they do believe in him? How would this be like people the world seems to me like the world believed that missing the mark involved violating the world's rules, not God's rules or or Jesus' rules. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. What if what what is the mark? What should be the mark? I mean, Woody is is pointing to what people, you know, say the mark is. But what from Jesus' point of view, what is the mark? It I think it all go all goes back to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. It's yeah, exactly. God. Absolutely. The the mark is God, you know, that's what the mark was for Jesus. That's what the mark is for God. That's where Jesus is trying to point us. And we want to bring everybody doing the same with everybody. We're pointing to God, helping other people pointing towards God, let God and the Holy Spirit do all the moving and the nudging and the teaching and the responsibility, right? So the, the world had all of these false marks. And if they believed in Jesus, that'd be a totally, they would have completely different marks. (laughs) That's it. Exactly. See how that works? Very cool. All right. So let's go to the next one. Wait, can you repeat that? That that was was, was too quick. (laughs) Woody? Oh, um, the world uh, believed and still believes in a lot of false marks like missing the mark false marks and if they believed in jesus uh and god as marlene said uh love the lord your god with all your heart soul mind and strength then they would have completely different marks like that would be their new new and only mark would be god right that changes everything so by not believing jesus they don't, they're not aim, even aiming at the right mark is the point. Okay. And you didn't was, say not believing in Jesus. You said not believing Jesus. Not believing Did, in Jesus, either one. Right. Either either one. One. Yeah. Belie- believing in Jesus simply means believing that he and the father are one. That's what that means. 
that's also what he kept saying. So if you believe what he says, you get to the same place. So I, I, I do thank you for that clarification, Shirley. I do use those terms interchangeably for that reason. Okay. Well, I was wanting Woody to say it again, too, when I was on mute. I was like, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> so I'm glad somebody else said it. <laughs> so let's move to the second one. Jesus says the world is wrong about justice because he's going to the Father and we won't see him anymore. So I kind of broke this one down for you in a couple of pieces. So number one, how did these religious leaders believe the Messiah would bring justice to the world? And I'm sure y'all could all bring class 122 right to mind. So um, uh, <laughs> we commented on that. Oh, did you? <laughs> although, although we did remember the whole thing about the warrior king. I mean, that's what they were expecting in the Messiah was a warrior king who would overthrow the Roman rule, who would restore the temple, who would do, you know, all those physical things that they were expecting in a an earthly warrior king. So that was, and, go ahead, Martha. And that because it was an earthly um, structure, they also believed they would come out on top. They would have a position on earth. And I think it was Marlene who commented, and we are still looking for that. <laughs> We've missed that. Good We've point. missed that, Mark. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Renee, you're talking, but I can't hear you. They, we also put it added in there that the world was expecting, or the people that were expecting Jesus to come as a warrior was going to give them all the political power of the world that they were the ones that are going to make the rules for the world not others well, that's still well, going on so the world was wrong about justice because they believed that justice meant the messiah was going to come as a warrior king and that and like renee says and that meant they would come out on top Right. They had that little corollary going on right there. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, and, and culturally speaking, you can understand why they would believe that and, oh, and yeah. why this was so revolutionary was because the king's justice was the justice. Yes. And if they're still thinking in terrestrial king mindset, they would believe that. Is there but is there any excuse for that today? a la Christian nationalism or any other um, religion that wants to um, rule the world, rule their, their country. There are, there are countries that their, geo their political structures are set and dominated by their religious standards. Yeah, the whole idea of faith, faith equals empire. Um, which we see over and over and over and over and is so inconsistent with Jesus. Right. Martha asked if, any, if there was any excuse for that. And I would, I would say no. <laughs> and Jesus said there was no excuse. He said, once I came and told you this, like no excuse, you know? That's right. He said, he said um, if I had never come, 
they, they wouldn't uh, have known and so they, would, they, they wouldn't be sinning. But now they do know because I've told them. And so uh, for them not to follow it is a sin. Yes. But and okay. and I think he had a very narrow view in this. Like he was talking about those particular guys who are out chasing him down right now, you know. Um uh and, but I love that you all are get you are getting this so well <laughs> because because if you think about it, if they think justice is God coming and squashing all their enemies and them being on top. And as Marlene, I think you were saying that they were like missing the point here that they forgot their roots. Do you really, do you remember way back in Genesis, what God called Abraham to do, what he said he was creating Israel for? To be a blessing to the nations. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And, and if that, if, if they, they are intended to be a blessing to all nations and God is elevating them for that purpose, to be a, a, a nation of priests and prophets and kings to, for that purpose, what does Jesus say about people in those positions? How are they supposed to act? Think upside down. They're, they're supposed to put everybody else ahead of them. Servant, that's right. They're supposed to be the servants. And Humble. that is where these religious leaders of Jesus' time are getting everything upside down, right? Wow. I also think uh, what he said, something that, that uh, another misunderstanding they had is what taking care of means. That you're supposed to take care of others, not get taken care of. Right. So with when Jesus comes and says, you know what, the world is getting the whole idea of justice wrong. <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to when when I come back, that will be evident. <laughs> um, this is what he's this is what I think he's talking about. This this seems to hang together for me really well. We, so let's we, talk about. We also wondered if we also wondered if uh, our past lessons on pretzel time would come into play here in terms of what they thought in terms of the timeline of justice and what that would look like and when it would happen. Um, if they didn't understand pretzel time, that would make a big difference in how they understood, you know, what and when and how justice would be um, complete or whatever their kind of end end date was. I mean, I still view like just go ahead. Sorry, I still view justice as like I deserve a wrong to be made right. Right. And so I look back at these people and of course they would hope that God would make something that had for many years been in their minds wrong. They've been mistreated, they've been slaves, they've been put a second class and their hope was on justice of please make it right. And it didn't happen. Like I, I, I too have a hard time even like that would really stink if I was, if it didn't turn out how I thought it, it should have. You know, that, that mentioned though pretzel time. And then what Gail said in the lesson where the Greek word that Jesus used was that this has already happened. Not that this is going to happen. Um, 
that would make sense to me because if Jesus is speaking in a larger cosmological sense of, you know, this already has been completed. Um, you, you're not there yet on your timeline, but in God's timeline, this has already happened. Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me of, of, of God speaking something into being. Right. And Jesus was that word. Super, super, super interesting. So on the on the third question, pardon, did somebody have it? I heard somebody. Jesus says, echo. Jesus says the world is wrong about judgment too, because the ruler of the world has already been judged. So this is kind of tied up in that justice bit where all these religious leaders are looking forward to this great big judgment and everybody's going to be judged, you know, um, and, and they're going to be proven right. Right. Um, so how does the world that, and I'm even including our modern world, how do we typically understand judgment um, and what happens after an adverse judgment, according to our worldly norms? You get punished. Well, I think according to our worldly norms, judgment implies a declaration of you've done right or you've done wrong. And if you've done right, you get rewarded. And if you've done wrong, you get punished. Right. And he and that, should know he's a judge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we have an expert panel here. <laughs> but I, I also think that judgment is something that we impose upon others rather than directing it inward. Yeah. Yeah. But judgment isn't for us. That's what it just said. That's what you just said, Gail. Mm -hmm. The, uh, I forget what the word was, the prince of this world, mm -hmm. or something like that, has already been judged. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm assuming that's Satan. Mm -hmm. I, I would, I would say judged. evil, you know, yeah. Evil. But mm -hmm. whatever word you want to use mm -hmm. for that um, has already been judged because the standard has been given. Mm -hmm. Love one another, love God. Mm -hmm. That's the standard. Mm -hmm. And so the judgment has already been given. We don't need to be condemning everybody. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, hang on, I got it. Oh, Martha's battery's dying, so she may disappear here in a, here in a second. Um, I I ref to your point, Shirley. I referenced John three seventeen through nineteen, which is John three sixteen. Obviously, comes right before it. That God so loved the world, you know, that He gave His only begotten Son, um, that whoever should believe in Him shall have eternal life. And you, the, but but it goes on. It doesn't stop there. It says, right. God did not send his son to condemn the world. Whoever believes is not condemned. But if, if, they, if they don't believe, they're already condemned because they haven't believed. And this is the verdict. Like, the, like Woody was saying, this verse says, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world. But people loved their darkness instead of light because their deeds are evil. 
you know, it, light's going to expose that and they're going to do what they can to stay in the darkness. Otherwise, everything will become clear. So taking John 3, 17 through 19 into account, what does it mean when Jesus says the ruler of the world has already been judged even before Jesus leaves? Jesus has sh already shed the light on, yeah. on the actions of evil. Yeah, evil's got nowhere to hide now. And I think also the thing, the other point possibly could be that because that the actual going against Jesus and God isn't not believing them in them, believing in them, it's not doing what they asked you to do. Yeah. And so I think the the maybe the evil in the world is like pride and um, having to be in power and wanting to stay in power, even though they're hurting others, that they're not doing what they're not using their power for good. They're using their power for evil. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think instead of like, satan or you know because i don't even know if you look at the pre pre early churches you know the the pre-constantine they never mentioned the devil or or something like that it was just you being you know the being an adversary against what god wanted was the evil mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So let's think about this third piece um, because Jesus is differentiating between justice and judgment here, right? The second question was justice. Mm -hmm. The third was judgment. And Woody brought up the point about, and, and uh, I think surely several of you said, you know, well, our concept of, of judgment is there's a verdict and then there's a punishment, right? But even in this world, as, as off the mark as it tends to be, even we have something called restorative justice. Even we have said to ourselves, maybe this isn't a really good model <laughs> for, to bring people back to health and to wholeness. Even we have processes available to us to get the injured party and the perpetrator and ev and the corollary damage, the people who were also hurt, the collateral damage, everybody around a table to talk to each other about how do we set this right. Hmm. And it has proven to be an immensely powerful way to approach judgment and justice. Thoughts, uh, Woody, I saw a thought. If, if the question is, okay, the last question, how does Jesus say the rule of the world has already been judged even before Jesus leaves? Um, seems to me like judgment 
is the is the verdict, as you said, or the the declaration, not the punishment itself. And I think Jesus is saying the ruler of the world has already been judged because the truth has come into the world, and it's obvious that the ruler of the world is not abiding by God's truth. That's right. That's right. And we ourselves as disciples and these disciples Jesus is talking to, he is saying the the Holy Spirit is going to come and he's going to show you. He's going to expose that the world has been sin, wrong about sin, about, you know, what the mark is, has been wrong about justice, about, you know, who, what, that it's not hierarchical that it's not you know some god's going to come out here and put somebody else on top of the heat you know that justice is restorative that it is serving each other and it's going to be and and the holy spirit is going to reveal that the world is wrong about judgment the world judges to punish but god has sent jesus as woody says as the light and as the truth to simply reveal. This this um, goes to something that we were talking about initially in our group um, that was triggered by something you had said in the lesson that um, it seems like Christians, oh, surely. Oh. It is surely okay. <laughs> um, that that modern Christians and perhaps through pretty much the history of the church um, is that, that we've gotten it wrong because we keep looking at faith and truth as an exclusionary thing where Jesus was about throwing open the doors and being inclusive and not not separating people out because they weren't, you know, in, in his case, because they weren't good Jews. Um, that, that that speaks to more of a universalist kind of understanding of the purpose of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Which isn't and, to say that there's not good and evil. Right. There is good and evil. It's not like God's going to let evil just, you know. But it it kind of, at least from my understanding of this is, you know, we have narrowed so much down to if you don't say, as I refer to it, the magical incantation of the sinner's prayer, that you will never be seen or accepted by God. When over and over and over again, what we're seeing in in this Bible study and and what I have been seeing from other sources is that um, God's truth is being revealed in many, many ways throughout the world. And that so many of us as Christians want to constantly, you know, focus on the gate is narrow, the path is narrow, you know, hardly anybody's going to make it. And boy, are we glad we're in the club. Um, when, when actually what Jesus is saying is, is God is throwing the gate open completely to everyone. And I am here to reveal God 
to you, and if you really understand what I was all about, then you understand God. And that's a very different viewpoint from what certainly what I grew up being taught. But it it I find comfort in it and it feels true and it brings peace. That was beautifully said, Mine. Absolutely. Yeah, because if the gate is wider, even if you don't believe, there's still the refining fire. Mm -hmm. So to me, I can I I can relate with Marlene saying like this universalist mentality. I don't want to put a label, but it is because at the end of the day, even if you on this earth, it's pretzel time. There will come a point where God will refine you and will show maybe the light that you can see in this world. So it isn't an either or choice like, oh, you didn't live this life like you should have. You didn't say the the prayer. You didn't believe. Therefore, you're going to eternal hell. It's And even if that didn't happen, there is this humble unconditional love that will refine us and we will get it even if we didn't get it here yeah. yes the whole, I- with their last breath. the whole idea that there is this like cut off and then you fall into hell you know is so is is like our limited linear time thinking right Whereas the reality is God has eternity and forever to work his mercy in us. I'm still struggling with this, struggling, struggling (laughs) with this because I was raised Baptist, Mm -hmm. 60 years of indoctrination and I'm having trouble letting go of some of this. Yeah, that's the Baptist here too. So, yeah, I let go of it a long time ago, but it's all still the only things I ever could try to way to figure it out or kind of, or to understand it. Not that I like it, but the way I finally tried to understand things are real hard to then morph into this other because everything is well. Then what about this? <laughs> then what about that? So it I mean, it's very interesting because. It it reminds me of a conversation I had with my pastor, my former pastor, several years ago, where I was kind of struggling with with the concept of hell, of it being eternal and and no escape. And um, and I thought, well, I'll just ask him what he thinks. You know, he's smart. He's educated. He had a Ph.D. And um, and he said. Um, I said, you know, there's part of me that feels like, you know, going back to the idea of justice, that um, there's that people who are truly, truly evil, you know, like Adolf Hitler, Saddam Hussein, you know, others I could name, um, that that there needs to be um, some kind of justice for them. Um, but also you know i was having trouble thinking okay so so how would god sort of parse that out um and what he said was um i don't believe that that 
what happens on this earth is the final word um, for any of us. Um, and that even when we see God face to face, we um, we will have a choice. Do we want to turn and be with God? Do we want to be in the light? Or do we still want to resist and go to the darkness? And God has such ultimate respect for humanity that, that we are allowed to make that choice. But he said, I still don't believe that that's a final decision. He said, you know, being separated from God is being separated from everything that is good and light and love, which is a horrible place to be. But God's love is eternal and relentless. And that God never stops pursuing even an Adolf Hitler and he said, if we're thinking in our timeline, it could be, you know, millennia before Hitler would realize that living, existing in the darkness is, is not where he wants to be and will turn. And he said, I ultimately believe that in the end, all will be restored to God because God never gives up on anybody. Yeah, and I think that we, we wouldn't even express it as millennia because the series of time has no meaning in God. Exactly, exactly. You know, I think all is in the one moment in God. And, 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 the, and the other thing is that, that we haven't brought, the, a word that we haven't brought into the conversation is healing. To be in God's presence is to be healed, okay? And so to be more fully in God's presence is to be like completely enveloped in healing. I think of, when I think of some of the most, the evil is things I can think of in this world right now. I, some of the word that comes to mind is narcissism you know, narcissism, right? And power and and so much of that is a mental illness, okay? So much, I'm not saying that to be mentally ill is to evil, is evil. Nobody, don't misquote me on this. I am saying that just like a physical illness can be healed, a mental illness can be healed. And if it is not healable here on earth, I still believe in the moment that is God, it can be healed. And that changes what justice is. Because justice is setting things right. It's putting them the, back the way they should be. Wow. I like that because we always think of it as punishment, like we were talking about earlier, but justice is setting things right. Oh my gosh. It's, and it's not us setting things right. <laughs> right? It's, it's it's God setting things right, which I think goes back to Marlene's point. I feel like the prodigal son's brother like no why do they get you know they've done all this harm why do they get 
to be exempt and made right. And yet I I have a reaction like this is holy ground to stand by and see something so deeply wrong made right. This is where we stand and cast our crowns before God. Mm -hmm. Gail, I have a question for you. (laughs) I may or may not have an answer. (laughs) Okay. Where I know that the Jewish people believe in Sheol. So that's not like they believe in, in what? In Sheol, you know, the, the place that you, where you die, you go Sheol. to Sheol. Yes, 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 yes. Got it. I okay. just couldn't understand your Southern yeah. accent. <laughs> Sorry. And that, that isn't like a fiery pit. You know, it's a place of reconciliation. Where? It's, dead. it's like a graveyard. Dead is dead. Like a graveyard. Yeah. Where did all the the Christian hell come from where did it start? How did it come to be? It was it was because of the progression of two things: progression of language translations of the Bible of Scripture. Not it wasn't called the Bible back then, but of Scripture. It was the the progression of the language translations, and it was the melding of the cultures. So what happened? And they both happened together. They happened because of each other. So we started out with the Hebrews speaking Hebrew, being Hebrew, physically isolated. Okay. Right. And they were the ones who had the concept of shield that dead is dead and that justice is served in a man having descendants. A man lives through his descendants and good comes to his descendants. So their their very worst punishment was wiping somebody's family completely out. And you see that over and over and over in their culture and written into the Hebrew Bible. As um, the, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Medes conquered Israel, um, they brought with them their cultures, okay, and their gods and their beliefs in how things happened. And um, we there was a lesson where in the study guide back, we did some, some work around, especially uh, the idea of Zoroastrianism. Um, and uh, so, so that brought in culture. They had always been at in on the big main trade route um from Egypt to everywhere else so egyptian culture was a big thing coming through so they there was always this idea of the underworld that that egypt brought with them okay so so this underworld and sheol began to started to kind of mesh together culturally okay especially after the Hebrews spent time in Egypt, right? <laughs> but, but um, you know, they came out of Egypt. They brought that with them out of slavery, you know, and God spent so much time trying to show them that he was a different God than the gods they were familiar with in Egypt, than the gods that were already there in Canaan and in Palestine. Um, and then comes Alexander the Great. 
right through the whole world. Greek becomes the language. Greek becomes the culture. It happens like a tsunami in the world. And it happens all over their known world. Okay, we're not talking about Asia or anything. We're talking about their known world. And um, they had their own pantheon of gods and goddesses, which we are quite familiar with. And each one had particular purposes. And some of them had parallels to some of the Canaanite gods. And, you know, um, but, but as the language changed, people no longer spoke Hebrew. They spoke Greek. So the scriptures had to be translated from Hebrew to Greek. And that is the Septuagint, the LXX for short. Okay, the 72. And when they translated the word Sheol from Hebrew to Greek, they used the word Hades, the Greek word Hades which came with all this other baggage from <laughs> Greece, Greco um, religious culture and understanding it just like automatically communicated all this other stuff that never had been associated with Sheol. And that was on top of the Persian understanding of the afterworld and of, you know, and, 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 and so we're coming in. So now we've got this, this melting pot in here of what culture and how gods work and and in the intertestamental period and the period in between the the old testament and the new between the hebrew bible and the new testament in those um 400 years or so um while the jews are living in captivity in babylon while they are being overtaken by the greeks while all this is happening, um, they're be, they're, they're, they begin to assimilate these ideas into their understanding of God. That's We're talking about something that is twice as long as the entire history of the United States. A long time. They're living in this culture. And so they begin to they they grow up on these stories of of heaven and hell and judgment and fire and all kinds of smiting because they live in a in a crossword in a crossroads that is not, has been nothing but changing hands violently from for thousands of years okay and so all of this begins to build into their culture and they begin to assimilate the idea that there is such a thing as hell apart from heaven and that there is such a thing as a resurrection to judgment where God's going to judge everybody and, and, you know, half of them are going to go this way and half of them are going to go the other way. And that was not in the original. Okay. And that's what the Sadducees and the Pharisees fought so hard about. Even within Judaism, they were fighting over which worldview is true. The Sadducees said there is no 
resurrection it dead is dead and we can prove it from scripture and the pharisees are no there's resurrection and judgment and all these things and we can prove it from scripture (laughs) and that all translated into christianity because jesus lived during this time frame and he's talking to people who understood these metaphors. This is how they thought of heaven and hell. Jesus met them where they were. I think so many of the things that we take out of Jesus' examples and teachings and parables and we build theological structures on had far less to do with his underlying point (laughs) than Mm -hmm. they had to do with the cultural motifs he was using as a good, really good teacher. Does that make sense, Renee? Yes, it does. Okay, thank you. We have time for another quick question. Sure. Speaking of languages, uh, and uh, okay, the passage, greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. In, In modern American culture, lay down his life means to die. Yes. Have yes. you have you looked at the what Greek uh, words were used for that phrase to see maybe it if it supported meaning something different than dying? It definitely does not it does not say dying for your friends. And and in the class I I actually tried to point out that this was before the crucifixion and Jesus is talking about how he lived. He says, live like I live, love like but I, I was, live. Yeah, I was specifically wondering about the, what Greek phrase was used. Oh, okay. Do you have the the reference right there? Because it's, it's going to be in John and um, it'll be in uh, the, uh, during the Last Supper. And so it's like in the 18th, 16th, 17th, 18th. And um I can look it up real quick if we can get the. No, 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 no. Okay. We don't have time for that, but I was just. Oh, here, I found it. It's it's John 15, 13. Hang on. Let me look real quick at the Greek. There's like a parallel Bible online in there. Yeah. Here we go. On time. 15, 13. Just takes me. I know where everything, I know where I can find it. I know approximately where stuff, all the stuff is. Greater than this love no one has that one, the life of him should lay down. That word is to place, to lay, to set, to fix, to establish. It can be mean kneeling. Um, it can be appointed. It can be assigned. It can be destined. It can be used in all different kinds of ways, but none of those oh. ways are dying. So like wow. for his life to be established for his friends. Something exactly. Like that. <laughs> that would be. Oh my gosh. Exactly. <laughs> Shirley is freaking out. <laughs> yeah, Shirley's having an aneurysm. Yeah. Repeat that. <laughs> Baptism just blew up, right? <laughs> that, that, that his, there is no greater love that one might have than that his life be established for his friends. Isn't that what we're called to do? Doesn't that resonate? Yes. 
Yeah. To, to live yeah. for others. Yeah. Rather than to die. Yeah. Yeah. We're not built to tear down and to distract. We're built to build up. Yeah. And to heal. And if we're the if that's what we're doing, that's what God is doing. That's what justice and judgment and is is about. We as humans have taken it and twisted it into death and punishment. Thank you for looking that up. Absolutely. I got nimble fingers, if nothing else. <laughs> that might need to be like rewritten in our Facebook, that last established um, line, please, because that that's powerful. <laughs> I'll put that in the discussion group. Thank you. You know, it makes me think there's so many out there spreading a different message. How powerful would it be if this message was to spread? Well, I, think, I think it would bring a lot of healing and a lot of peace to people, but it also would be met with fierce opposition. Yes. This literally has me in tears. Yeah, this is the mercy of God. This is what Jesus came to free us for. These are the kinds of bindings that Jesus came to release. This points us to God. It does not bar us from God. And that to me is the core of Christianity. That is the core of following Jesus. So we're going to stop here today. This was an amazing class. Oh my gosh, y'all are amazing. And we will see you next week.